There are no borders with Bitcoin, and from the beginning, its disruption has been global. Tune in to Borderless as Coindesk reporters Anna Badikova, Danny Nelson, and Tanzil Akhtar dissect their top most recent Bitcoin and cryptocurrency stories from around the world. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder that Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Welcome to Borderless. I'm Anna Baidakova from Moscow, Russia. And I'm Tanzil Akhtar, based in the United Kingdom, Lancashire. And I'm Danny Nelson in Park City, Utah in the United States. Hi, guys. And good to have you back, Danny. Good to be here. (laughs) On today's show, we're going to discuss how traditional capital markets are starting to look a lot like crypto. And the retail investors are piling on the GameStop options, inducing some mayhem on the Wall Street. At the same time... The CBDC discussion is taken to the new level as people start talking about possible security risks of the digital yuan. So we're going to start from some really exciting stuff, even though it's not directly crypto. So Taz, tell us about them stonks. Thanks, Anna. So the big story of the week involves a stock called GameStop and a Reddit-based trading community called Wall Street Bets, which I'm sure everyone has heard of by now. Uh, This team of uh, traders has been causing huge chaos in the equities market, the US equities market, by the way. It's, It's almost like the equities market is behaving like crypto, extremely volatile. So they've they've been shorting certain stocks and they've gone up against like huge hedge funds. Just to give you an idea, shorting is, you know, it's normally practiced by hedge funds. Just to give you an idea what shorting is. So a short squeeze is when somebody says, you know, a lot of investors are short, so I'm going to go long and make them buy the stock back even higher. So when the price of the stock um, being shorted starts to climb, traders betting that it will fall are then forced to buy in order to stem their losses. So this is nothing new, but what's interesting is that there's a huge amount of small retail investors going up against hedge funds. And there's one hedge suffered huge losses which is Melvin Capital Management, according to CNBC. And then we've also seen um, Elon Musk tweet about the Wall Street bets and his tweets have sent the stock up, I think, 50% on Tuesday. Again, this is like a breaking story, but I've been watching it. I mean, I'm based in the UK and I've been up two nights in a row just watching the US markets. Like I am obsessed. I've never seen anything like this. And I'm based in the UK. Obviously, we have our markets are very different, less volatile than the US, I would say. And yeah, so regulators have also been commenting on this situation. The SEC released a statement. So, I mean, I'm sure you, Danny and Anna, want to chip in on this. It's been a crazy week. It's not so good that investors are losing money, but it's just the, the story where we're seeing small investors going up against huge institutional, like Wall Street players. Yeah, j- j- just wanted to note that actually, like the retail users were not shorting, like they, they were playing against uh, the hedge funds shorting, right? So they were, they were going long, they were like buying stocks uh, and buying, buying, buying. Uh, actually, they weren't buying the stock itself, they were buying, I think, the options. But that anyway caused the, the price go up. And yet, and Zio, I, I'm totally with you here because this story is not about the market I'm covering, it's not about Russia. People in Russia don't trade stocks normally like Americans do, 
people normally don't have, you know, like my mom and dad don't have Robin Hood or TD Ameritrade or something else to have a stash of stock as their retire plan B. But I was like, you know, I put aside my morning routine today and was like literally sitting on my couch reading the Twitter and Reddit and what people are talking because like the power of this moment is really mesmerizing that the, you know, like the ordinary traders saying, yeah, I'm putting my last money basically into these stocks because I hate you Wall Street people and you, you, you caused so much pain to people in, in the 2008 crisis. And now I'm going to induce this pain on you, even if it's going to cost me my shirt and pants, basically. They're, they're stealing the shorts right off the body. And I, I, I honestly think that they're doing, they're doing God's work, these Reddit traders. They found a stock that had 140% of its positions were shorted, which is crazy to think. Uh, like these inv institutional investors and hedge funds had shorted 140% of the outstanding shares. Of course, there are only 100% of outstanding shares. So how are, they, how are they doing that? And they analyzed this. They realized if we start to buy this stock up, because we like GameStop, because we're the millennials, the price is going to go up and it's going to put the short sellers in a squeeze and they're going to have to buy the stock to cover their positions. And when they buy the stock, that's going to boost it up more. And it's a snowball rolling up a hill with nitrous attached to the back of it. And the crazy thing that's happening now is the response coming out of Wall Street. You see the SEC putting out this very a vapid statement saying we're monitoring ongoing volatility, which doesn't really mean anything other than they're keeping their eye on it. You see um, politicians now. Rashida Tlaib is calling. She's a congresswoman. She's a Democrat congresswoman. She's calling for investigations into Robinhood because Robinhood today decided to stop trading for GameStop and a couple of other stocks that this army of Redditors have been piling into. And so you see this contrast between what the Redditors are able or thought they were able to do in the markets and them saying, well, what we're doing is, you know, it's, it's no different, maybe a little more public, but no different than the hedge funds. They're uh, shorting these positions. And now you're seeing the institutional side of things trying to stop them from actually trading which is absurd. And I think it really speaks to sort of the wider decentralization narrative that we talk about so much in cryptocurrency. This like David versus Goliath battle where Goliath gets hurt and he's like screaming, SEC, like the regulators, please, please do something about that. I'm, I'm getting hurt here. Yeah, that's just, uh, and Preston Byrne actually at, at Coindesk wrote a column about that warning that when institutional players get hurt like that, they're going to call for more regulation and more potential limitation of free speech to protect themselves in the future because these people still have so much ammunition to protect their interests against the quote-unquote small guys who once in the history came after those big guys to, you know, maybe just take revenge for all the, all the damage that the big guys caused. I think the narrative, like the, everyone wants the underdog to win in this situation. But then you also have hedge fund managers like uh, Skybridges, Capitals, Anthony, Scaramucci. 
who commented on this GameStop situation. So he actually said that this is a like a the investing craze for this GameStop is a proof of concept for Bitcoin success. So, you know, he, this is a Wall Street player. He's your traditional guy who's also investing in crypto himself. So it's not really clear cut. It's not like the small investor against the, the big investor because you've got institutional money in crypto. I know we're talking about GameStop here, but I'm just trying to say that, you know, there's, there's a, it's not that clear cut. This story is just so complex and huge and so much to unpack here. But if we turn back to crypto, like, why would we even talk about this, right? Because all the cryptoverse got so rattled up by this story. Many crypto influencers and just crypto reachers and crypto entrepreneurs went on Twitter to say, hey, guys, guess what? That wouldn't happen to you in crypto. So, you know, like, stop playing this mainstream finance game and come join us. Mike Novogratz actually didn't miss the chance to advertise DeFi to people on Twitter. Like, hey, that's not going to happen on DeFi, even though who knows. So do we think that crypto really fixes that? The whole problem of short sellers uh, harming companies, presumably, wouldn't happen in the cryptoverse. Like decentralization fixes that? I think that decentralization can certainly fix, I don't know about the, the uh, market conditions, but with a decentralized exchange, for example, you definitely could prevent a situation like we're seeing now with Robinhood and Merrill Lynch and TD Ameritrade and Charles Schwab, all of these brokerages, some Robinhood being the most popular among millennials, but the other ones, E-Trade too, being you know very popular among retail investors as a whole, saying, okay, we're seeing all this volatility. We're just not going to allow you guys to purchase any GameStop. So Robinhood, which has been the impetus for all this, did that today. And I mean, I'm speaking to you guys right now on Thursday at uh, 11 in the morning Eastern Standard Time, so market hours, and GameStop is down 61%. 61%. It started the day around 350. It's now down to 162. And it, this is a direct result of an institution of the trading rails saying think, we're not going to allow you guys to buy this anymore. But Danny, I think regulators have the best interest of like small investors for small investors because they could lose a lot of money as well, right? So yeah, but this isn't hedge the funds can afford. It. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, another story that I wrote today involving cryptocurrency Doge, right? So that shot up double the price because some guy called Wall Street Bets chairman uh, tweeted about it. So we're also seeing a lot of like social media influencers manipulate, but kind of like play the market through platforms. So I think it's interesting that the future, we're probably going to see a lot more regulation around social media as well. What do you guys think? What's your take on that? That's the nastiest part, actually, because, you know, under the label of caring about retail investors, all these like Robin Hoods of the world basically, uh, you know, shut their mouth. Because people were explicitly telling on Reddit and uh, wherever that it's not about money for them right now. And they're like ready to, to lose all the money they invested in this uh, GameStop shares just to show these Wall Street people that you can't just play this game endlessly. We're, we're going to come after you. And of course, the retail investors are going to find themselves on the losing side. Even now, there were like rumors that Melvin Capital Management, 
this this was I, I think the most high profile victim of the short squeeze that the Robin Hood traders caused. But they got bailed out right away. Citadel injected a two billion dollars into them right away. So, you know, like the Wall Street guys are still fine. The retail traders are still where they are. It was the power of this momentum so beautiful to watch. I would agree with Danny. With, in a decentralized world, it wouldn't be able to pull the plug, stop the trading, stop the communication, stop the platform from working if, if you don't really have this centralized control. But we don't know. And until we're there, we never know, right? There's almost certainly going to be a class action suit against Robinhood. Oh, you mean by the Reddit investors? I'm sure, because they'll say, you stopped our ability to trade, and that almost immediately harmed our investment. And they won't be wrong. I don't know how successful they'll be in the suit, but there will certainly be suits against Robinhood, which is itself not the most up-and-up company. According to the reporting that we've done, they've been profiting their order flow, which basically means they are offering commission-free trades by working with the brokerages who are executing those trades to perhaps not give the best deals to their investors, to the people who use Robinhood. They had settled with the SEC over it. I have to say they, did, they neither admitted or denied guilt, but they did settle with the SEC over these allegations. And there are more ongoing suits against them for these deals that they're doing with some of these hedge funds. So this is not a company that has people like to say Robinhood is democratizing finance. This is not a company that is in its mission statement out there to democratize finance. Like also talking about decentralized alternatives, you cannot sue Uniswap, but actually Uniswap, I think, just can't delist whatever you're trading, or can it? I'm not sure. One thing for sure, actually, one thing that hedge funds were accused here of the, the so-called naked short selling, when you pretend to borrow the stock that does not exist and you sell the stock that does not exist in reality, so you're able to short, basically sell much more than there is physically. I'm being told by our markets team that short selling is basically impossible in crypto, which is probably the advantage of decentralization. Like you can't naked sell crypto, which is good. Maybe decentralization is the fix. Cool. We'll be watching what happens next with GameStop very closely. I'm watching from the UK and it's really, really interesting. It's a huge story for financial markets. We'll stop. One of the questions that I have to uh, slyly move on to the next topic is uh, if we'll ever be able to use uh, digital currencies to invest in the stock markets. To go back to what that Wall Street Bets chairman fellow said on Twitter today, Robinhood is only able to do this to us, this being shutting down our positions because we use their currency. So I'm wondering what will happen when we move as a, as a world towards uh, digital versions of our fiat currencies. And according to research that was published yesterday, Wednesday, by the Bank for International Settlements, which is basically a bank for central banks, maybe 20% of the world's population will be using a general purpose digital currency in the next three years. And this would be a digital version of money that the central bank, like the Federal Reserve, is issuing. Now, what they don't say in that report is where that 20% is coming from, and it's almost certainly coming from China, which has 
maybe 18% of the world's population and is also much farther along with their digital currency trials than anyone else, except for perhaps the Bahamas. Uh, now, outside of China, there's not really much movement towards actually rolling out a digital currency, but 86% of central banks are looking into the pros and cons of issuing one. And yesterday, when the BIS put out this report, the general manager, Augustin Cartesenes, I'm sure I messed up his last name, but we'll go with it. He's pretty anti-Bitcoin. That sentiment really showed through in his remarks. He was attacking the cryptocurrency for wasting too much energy, saying it's doomed to fail under the weight of its own 21 million coin hard cap, and it's vulnerable to a 51% attack. Now, the Bitcoin community really slapped back at him when he issued these comments. But what the, my favorite thing about what he said, there was this line uh, where the central banker says, clearly, if digital money is to exist, the central bank must play a pivotal role guaranteeing the stability of value, ensuring the elasticity of the aggregate supply of such money, and overseeing the overall security of the system. So I see elements of the conversation we've already had about Robinhood and GameStop right there. What do you guys think about that? I can like hear a loud booing sound from the crypto community after this phrase, I guess. Talking about using their currency, the fiat-based stablecoins will be exactly their currency that are centralized and under the full control of the system. So probably not that different from now. So yeah, in regarding CBDCs, every country is moving at its own pace. China is way ahead when it comes to developing its own digital currency, digital yuan. Europe, there has been developments on the European front. So earlier this year, the European Commission and the European Central Bank announced that they would team up to explore potential issues that could come up with the digital euro before a decision is made and they kick off the currency's development this summer. Europe is definitely progressing towards developing a digital euro. The country which is definitely leading this process has been China, for sure. And it's doubling down on its digital yuan piloting. And some researchers start paying attention to the possible risks of that project. And this risks is, of course, surveillance. Center for New American Security issued a report on how the Chinese Communist Party might get access to the financial data of people worldwide, including potentially Americans, if they will be using the Chinese system in the future, if the digital yuan gets spread around the world and people not only in China, but in other countries will be using it, for example, to trade with Chinese for, you know, importing goods or just dealing with your Chinese friend that, you know, you buy them coffee and they send you some digital yuan to refund it at some point in the future. So our colleague, Ben Powers, read the report and talked to its authors. Basically, the danger is phrased this way. So right now, of course, the governments of the world can monitor the financial transactions that are happening electronically, but no government has this wholesale access to the financial data minute by minute in real time. The Chinese Communist Party will have the ability to monitor in real time the minute financial dealings of its citizens and potentially anyone in the world that will be dealing with their citizens. So taking into account how China has been broadening its financial power around the world, 
China has multiple partnerships and local currency swap programs with uh, many countries. You know, countries like Nigeria, Japan, South Korea having quite intense trading relationship with China, and they might use digital yuan quite broadly in the future. So, and there might be a situation when, like you or me, we, we're going to deal with digital yuans in some form. Does it scare you guys, this, this kind of financial surveillance? And I wonder, do you really ever think about the privacy of your financial transactions? Do you, do you think about it when you like send money on Venmo or PayPal or something? I have nothing to hide, so I don't really care. Like, I, I don't care who's looking at how I'm spending my money. So for me, it's not an issue. But Danny, what about I you? have plenty to hide and I hide it all in cash. <laughs> and... Um, or, or in Bitcoin. To. Do you hide in Bitcoin? Well, I, if I hide it in Bitcoin, then I'm going to run into the same problem that you're talking about here. Because with Bitcoin, assuming that I'm doing it starting out with the Coinbase or something like that, it would be rather easy for a government or any one of these companies that uh, make money off of tracking transactions to monitor my payments. Be a little more convoluted than you know everything running through a centralized authority, which is how the digital yuan presumably would be working and would give more information more directly to the government. But if you're using something like Bitcoin and you're not taking precautions to make sure that you're anonymizing yourself, then your transaction history, maybe not your name, but your transaction history is out there for everyone to see. So I certainly am scared about the implications of a digital yuan or really any digital currency for that matter, taking hold and becoming so big and so systemic that other means of payment, basically cash, are off the table. But for me, I just would try to avoid using those types of currencies. And also just, I probably wouldn't avoid them forever because we spend so much money all the time. We don't really think about who's looking into it. Presumably, we, if we're thinking about who's looking into it, we would take precautions not to uh, conduct that transaction in a form that could be monitored. But with the digital yuan, I would say that it's a, a natural progression of the evolution of money and the surveillance state. So not a, not a ringing endorsement, I guess. Right. But I must say that when I was first introduced to Venmo and I could see all those transactions my friends are sending, I was like, wow. So I basically can reconstruct their day uh, using this information if I wanted, like, okay, like this friend of mine obviously had a lunch with her ex-boyfriend because she paid him for beer or something like that. On one hand, you have nothing to hide. But as my friend once said on, on Twitter, okay, if you have nothing to hide, write the number of, of your bank card and CVV code right here, please. On one hand, nothing to hide. On the other hand, maybe not so comfortable to have anyone able to peer right into what I'm doing with my money, if, even if there is nothing notorious there. I've got so, nothing to hide, Anna, but I'm not going to give you my account details. Okay, Danny, what about you? I think that with, with Venmo in particular, first off, when I use Venmo, I almost never put in, in the description, I almost never put in the actual thing that it's for. That's not because that I'm getting lunch with my ex or something. It's just because I find it more funny. No comment. It's more, I find it more funny to put in something ridiculous like Tide dish pods or something to that effect. But I think that on a more serious note, what, what Venmo and that sort of 
social broadcasting of our payments is doing to us. It's making us more comfortable with the idea that we're, you know, every part of our lives is something that we can share with the world. Now, of course, when we're writing those descriptions on Venmo, we're doing it because, you know, we're passively aware that our friends might be looking at it and it's just, you know, a cool way to kind of say what you're doing. Of course, the company can see it, they can monitor it, and they actually can take action against it based on what you say. A short story many years ago in the tiny window when Cuba was opened up to U.S. travelers, I visited and uh, my cousin was there too. After the trip, I owed him some money. So I sent him a Venmo and in the Venmo, there was the word Cuba and the transaction, which was a small one, uh, was put in limbo because of sanctions violations because Venmo was monitoring for keywords. And when they saw the word Cuba, they shut it down. So it was only like a dollar or two, but that dollar is still frozen in purgatory in Venmo and I can't get it out. And I'm, I'm, It's okay. It's not that much money, but that's a very real form of censorship that they're conducting because of that monitoring. And, you know, if a state is also trying to track your transactions, they're going to be able to do that much more effectively and much more forcefully than what happened to me with, you know, just a small payment that violated allegedly sanctions. Well, exactly. That's what I'm most wary of, the unlikely side effects of this kind of surveillance, because you never know where your data ends up with. And I'm a bit paranoid about that in general. By the way, there is a great book, like really thick book, but it's worth reading. It's called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zubov. If you read it, guys, I guarantee you're going to become as paranoid as I am, and maybe even more. She's just like gathering all these uh, cases of um, surveillance capitalism. She's picturing like a really grim image of like, you know, how, the corp- how much the corporations actually know about us. And even when we don't think that, you know, th- these facts are of any significance, when put into the big picture, they make us so easy to manage like the human beings are so easily manageable if you have enough data on, you know, what they think, what they did yesterday, what they want to buy, you know, what kind of beer they drink and so on. Basically, I think this is why the, the crypto industry has been working so hard for all these years on the anonymity of transactions and anonymity tools for Bitcoin and uh, altcoins that also marshal anonymity features. So maybe in the future, we're going to live in this bipolar world in which on the one pole, there will be the huge monstrous government controlled systems that will be monitoring every step and like every dollar spent on chewing gum. On the other pole, there will be an absolutely underground cypherpunk society that will be like cleaning all the traces of the face of the earth and uh, trying to obfuscate everything they're doing. I, I believe in such a future. <laughs> no, it's, also, in, it's an interesting discussion, Anna. That's very good. Like, I was just thinking, are you on Facebook and Twitter? I mean, you use it for I work. am. <laughs> yes. No, I am. And, uh, and uh, like, absolutely. And um, you use but, Amazon for shopping, right? I mean, we're all in I lockdown. Am. We need technology. You can't just go I off am. the grid. I am. I, am. I do I not use Amazon. 
And I but you're on Twitter. Th- Twitter is not that bad. I mean, like, and- how is the crypto community going to shield their coins? You know, how are they? They need social media. They cannot go off the grid. I understand the argument. The truth is most people are like passively complacent to this surveillance reality. And I do hit the I agree button without reading the terms and conditions, which takes forever to read, agreeing to whatever concessions of my privacy to just use that app that I want to use. The whole point here is, you know, maybe we should start caring. Maybe we don't. Maybe it's not a big deal. No. By the way, I think when you're having a lunch with your ex, you should pay them back with some tanking altcoins. <laughs> That's too vindictive. I'm, even I'm not that heartless. Well, well, by the way, some serious stuff has been happening uh, right now. Big serious guys gathered this week in Davos. Oh, actually, they didn't. They just did it virtually, right? Yeah, so there's a, obviously Davos is a huge event. It's where everybody who's anybody attends and it's where like the real money goes to discuss uh, climate change, cryptocurrencies, everything from politics and policies. You have uh, high profile people attending. But this year it was online. So there's a virtual Davos summit. And I think there's an event being held in Singapore. So there's a couple of stories that are crypto related, which have emerged from Davos summit online, virtual summit. So Glenn Hutchins, who is the co-founder of global tech investment firm called Silver Lake, he kind of countered the widely held view that Bitcoin is mostly used for illicit activity when speaking as part of the forum. So he said the, the belief ignores the immutable nature of the blockchain tech underlying Bitcoin. So Bitcoin leaves a permanent unaltered record, hence why almost all criminals using it are caught. It is fundamentally wrong to say that Bitcoin is mostly used for crime. And on the other hand, up to 90% of $100 bills are used for organized crime and tax evasion in the US because cash is untraceable and fungible. So again, I mean, we've brought this up in a previous podcast. I think it was, was it Yellen and Lagarde? Everyone's been bashing Bitcoin this year. So it was interesting that he was part of the virtual summit at Davos and kind of talking pro Bitcoin. I must say that last year we had the entire newsletter dedicated to Davos. We had the entire series of publications and features about what's been going on in Davos and how it was related to crypto. And, and this year, it's just like crypto got mentioned there. So it's really I, I depressing. If- it's really depressing, obviously, because of the pandemic, you know, people are not meeting anymore. But I was actually in Davos last year for a cannabis event, not crypto. And I think over the years, three years ago, during the ICO boom, there's a lot of talk around blockchain ICOs. 2018 was a huge year for crypto. And then during the bear market, it quietened down. Last year, I think they had dedicated uh, stands and talks around crypto. But this year, again, it's whittled down again. And it's surprising because the price of Bitcoin hit 40,000 during Christmas. You know, it's in the limelight again. Yeah. Why is that? Like everybody's talking about CBDCs and the regulators are coming up with new rules, but it doesn't look like it got reflected in the Davos agenda. You know, I I think I'm okay with that because so much of what we talk about here is, you know, all these central bank types and these global leaders poo-pooing Bitcoin and saying how if we want digital money, then the central banks have to do it. And that's that. Bitcoin's down from its its all-time high, but it's still doing comparatively tremendously. And we don't really need them. The story will keep going. The hedge funds will keep piling in. The big money is going to keep coming. The industry is going to keep growing. And Davos, those guys can keep their 
whatever it is that they talk about in their little igloos over there. Yeah, I, I would agree. Probably crypto is so much better off without those big guys discussing it. Well, guys, you are really anti-establishment here, aren't you? I love schmoozing with the big guys, drinking oh, champagne in Davos. Don't call me a seller, but I love, you know, I love schmoozing. I love well, Davos. I love Switzerland, full stop. But anyway. well, getting, well, well, getting their money into the crypto is good for sure. So probably more institutional money, less institutional talk, or am I being mean? I don't know. On, on the bright side, though, the, the governments of Colombia and Estonia placed the Bitcoin white paper PDF on their website. So thank you, big guys, for that. <laughs> really helping decentralization. And let all the governments of the earth host the Bitcoin white paper, right? That would be such a huge help. Annie, did you write a story on um, the mayor of Miami also uploading a paper as well? Uh, yes. Yeah, that was interesting. I've actually seen him speak live at an event in Miami. He's very dapper. He, he is. And right now he's, he's doing a big push to try to get uh, people who are leaving California to come and set up their tech uh, startups in Miami. Uh, for some reason, he's decided that the most effective way of doing this is to pander to the cryptocurrency crowd. I think he's being egged on by the Winklevi. I know, I've seen <laughs> but, the pictures. <laughs> but you know he, what? He... We'll take it. Yeah, cool. Okay, well, let the big guys be helpful for crypto. And let's hope they don't stand on its way too much. On that, we can wrap it up, I guess. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening. And please subscribe to Coindesk Podcasts, especially for the Coindesk report feed, which includes Borderless. And let us know if you enjoyed the show. We now have an email, which is borderless at coindesk.com. So write us what you think. You've been listening to Borderless. I'm Anna Baidakova from Moscow. I'm Tanzi Lakta from the UK. And I'm Danny Nelson from the US. See you all next week. You've been listening to Borderless, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. By subscribing to one feed with your favorite player, you'll get free access to all the shows from the editorial team at Coindesk, each focused on a particular niche, perspective, or ongoing discussion within the world of cryptocurrency. This episode featured Anna Badakova, Danny Nelson, and Tanzil Akhtar, with an announcement by Lila Ledesma. Today's show is produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Cody Martin. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcast at coindesk.com. 